Welcome back. Uh, here at Palestine Deep Dive, we examine the big issues in the Middle East each week and with a special focus on Palestine. We also take a look at the wider global situation and what's making the news and what isn't and why isn't it? And we do our best to get behind the issues. And this week, we're delighted to be co-hosting this event with We Are Not Numbers. It's a great organization. It's determined to show that Palestinians uh, real, lead real lives uh, and are not just statistics. Uh, and you can follow We Are Not Numbers at We Are Not Numbers. And we'll be talking about the organization uh, and what it does to Issam shortly. So I'm delighted to be joined by a, a stellar constellation of guests on the ground in Gaza and in Florida in the United States. And I'd like to begin by introducing Dr. Yara Assi. Yara has been one of our guests before. Hello, Yara, thank you very much for joining us. She's a lecturer at the University of Central Florida, a Fulbright US scholar for 2020 and an Al-Shabaka policy member. And uh, just in case you don't know, Al-Shabaka is an independent nonprofit organization whose mission is to educate and foster public debate on human rights and self-determination in Palestine. Sahal Fefel, who is a medical mission coordinator, and you're going to tell me off from mispronouncing your second name in a minute, but uh, Suhail is a medical mission coordinator for Palestine Children's Relief Fund uh, in Gaza City. And with Suhail is Nada, his daughter, who's a dentistry student at Al-Azhar University, uh, Gaza. And by the way, Nada is Sahar's daughter, so this is very much a family show today. And last but not least, of course, uh, Issam Adwan. He's the Gaza project manager for We're Not Numbers, and he trained as a journalist and as an English teacher, and has also just been involved in working with Al Jazeera in putting together a documentary, which we can talk about. So welcome to you all. Thank you everyone for joining us today at Palestine Deep Dive. And for those of you who are watching um, and who have got questions for any of our guests, do please start sending them in. We're always keen to know who you are, where you're, where you're from because, and where you're sending your messages from because uh, this, uh, this live show goes all over the world. Uh, and of course, we have lots of people who follow up afterwards um, and, and, and watch the recording. My name is Mark Seddon. Uh, I used to be the uh, UN correspondent for Al Jazeera uh, in New York, and I subsequently worked for the Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, and I've worked for a number of UN organizations over the, over the years. Uh, but primarily, I'm a journalist, and so those old journalistic uh, habits don't dive, don't, don't disappear quickly. Um, now, uh, oh, I'm just getting, uh, there's a message there that I don't have to read, but uh, what I'm going to do straight, is, straight away is to go to you, um, Issam, and I just wonder, I mean, for, for, we're, we're doing this in concert with you today with we, We're Not Numbers. It's great to be doing this. What we'd like to know is a bit more about your organization, what you do, what brought you to what you're doing. And by the way, before you answer that question, I should say that Issam in, in Gaza uh, is in a darkened room. The power's gone off. Probably um, something that happens quite regularly, I imagine. But anyway, he's, he's there, no power but powering on and, and, and waiting, to answer, waiting to answer all these questions. So Issam, tell us more about your organization and what you do. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. And first, I would like to say Salam Alaikum from Gaza. My name is Asam Adwan, and I work, as I said, as the project manager for We Are Not Numbers. So We Are Not Numbers, as a youth initiative started after the war 2014, we thought that the only things that is known about Gaza is the image of killing, the war, the blood, the rubles, and so on. But we believed in the other message that nobody is a number and every story truly matters. We established this project since 2015, and we started with a single story that we need to talk about a martyr to represent his life, not as, as a martyr, but as somebody who lived and sacrificed his life for the cause he, he believes in. So starting from this mission, throughout the work of We Are Not Numbers, we tended to tell every untold story. And regarding the capacity that we have, we try so hard to represent the Palestinian identity and the heritage and the traditions and anything, anything that could be a representative of, of a Palestinian existence within a story. Throughout this, not showing only the unfortunate part of the story, but also talking about the hope, the love that is found in that story. Throughout the efforts in the last five years, we have accomplished more than, we have wrote more than 800 stories. We have produced more than 30 short films, including two recognized internationally. And we are trying throughout our connections to spread that what is known about Gaza is not the only face that the rebels and the killing is not the only face that you have to see in Gaza, but you have to look at Gaza from a human side perspective, from, from a humanized perspective, which has been lost in the narrative for the past decade. Isam, that's very interesting. And, and, and I think it will be to a lot of people who just hear about Gaza when there, uh, there is conflict, when there is war, when people are being killed. Um, and so uh, I think a lot of people would like to know, well, how, how do we find out more? Where do we find you? Where do we find We Are Not Numbers? Where can we see some of your work? Yeah, definitely. We have started our work in, on our website and as well as we are using the social media accounts of We Are Not Numbers. You can visit our website, wearenotnumbers.org. You can find hundreds of stories and not only stories because we try to show the other side of those stories. For example, we focus on creative writing teachings and novels writing, poems writing, but also within, within the last two years, we were able to establish a special project for example, in, in 2018, during the protest of the Great March Free Turn, we thought that we needed an idea to represent the complexities of life in Gaza as much as found during the Great March Free Turn. I was there as any other Palestinian, as any other Gazan. I was an, an activist, I was a journalist, but above all, I was a protester. So during my, my existence there, I have witnessed such paradox in the front lines of the Great March Free Turn. We have seen people with bare souls and bodies defending their cause, defending the, the United Nations Resolution Number 194, and they demanded that. And as well as we tried to show that at the backside of this, of this marching, we have, seen, we have seen people cooking, playing volleyball, and laughing with each other, making reading chains, bringing their books and read anything. So what we thought of is that there, there are more than what you have seen of the Great Marshall Free Turn. This happened in 2018 and in 2019, we established another project and it's totally different than our, our, our field of work, which is writing. We thought that during the establishment of the Eurovision on a Palestinian land, that we needed to use the same outlet that Israel is using to whitewash its crimes 
we're also using it as a matter of resistance. You said, Therefore, you say, did you say Eurovision? Yeah, yeah. You During, uh, the, the song contest. Yeah. So yeah, because, because many, many, many people in Europe did wonder, for, and probably still do, um, you know, when Israel actually became part of Europe. But I'm, I'm sure that, um, uh, you know, the, the people, uh, people are not discriminatory. And would, uh, if Israel can uh, be part of the Eurovision, why shouldn't Palestine? But my question, one, one last question to you before moving to Sahel. I mean, you know, w when we hear from Gaza, we hear, if we're lucky, from reporters who are able to be in Gaza, and it's not easy for reporters to get in and out, as you know. Do you try and connect some of the people whose stories you are telling directly with people elsewhere in the world? Yeah, definitely. Every story of a Palestinian or, or other people who are facing injustice, their stories matter. And we are trying to, throughout our work to connect with Palestinians in the West Bank and the occupied territories, Palestinians in the diaspora as well. Not only we, throughout the work, we are not numbers. We're not only writing about our experiences, but we are also writing about other sufferings as well. We hear a lot of stories, unfortunate ones and beautiful ones as well. So we try to show the different sides of our narrative as Palestinians as, as best as we can to reclaim the stolen narrative for the past decades. Thank you, thank you. So, Suhal, if I can move to you, and um, I think if we can make a start, we look at uh, uh, the situation in Gaza now, and, and what the United Nations was saying back in 2015, if you recall, is that um, essentially Gaza could be uninhabitable by 2020. Well, we're in 2020. Yeah, well, actually, uh, it was, uh, you know, an assumption from the United Nations, but uh, uh, we are still alive. Uh, the, the life here in Gaza still, uh, you know, uh, hard. It's not an easy one, but people have the impression to struggle and to fight and to, to live as uh, any human being in the world. Uh, Gaza uh, still uh, having, you know, the siege, which is imposed more than uh, 13 years uh, ago, uh, and people, uh, you know, finding it, it uh, finding it, it is very hard, uh, you know, to to secure uh, foods and to, you know to have a normal life. Well, Sahil, I mean, I mean, it, Gaza has also been described by a variety of people. Um, many people with not a, a political axe to grind, but who are basically looking at the reality of the situation on the ground in one of the most crowded parts of the globe, uh, and a very and a, and a part of the part of the globe that is subject to intense sanctions and has been subject to intense warfare. So the question is, um, are they right when they say that Gaza is actually, in effect, an open air prison? In fact, really Gaza, it's an open uh, prison uh, because uh, the people here uh, doesn't have the access to live. Uh, as you uh, may know that Gaza has only two, uh, you know, border uh, crossings, one uh, with Israel and the other with Egypt. And the, um, um, the Egyptian uh, border uh, most of the time uh, is closed and they are uh, open it temporarily. And when they open it, you know, a few number uh, of people were able to cross. And this will need, you know, a special coordination in advance. And, you know, the number of people who can cross, it's almost 500 
people per day, which is nothing. If you want to compare it to the, uh, let's say, the Alimbi Bridge, uh, in the regular situation, uh, you know, uh, daily it's around uh, three, uh, 13,000 people uh, can cross daily uh, without any delay. You can't imagine that people from Gaza, if they want to travel through Egypt, sometimes they are spending two nights uh, between uh, Rafah border uh, to reach Cairo, and sometimes they are, you know, facing, you know, major, uh, you know, risk while they are traveling through Sinai Desert. Uh, this is number one. Number two, the, the crossing through areas, uh, you, need, you need, you know, uh, a permit from the Israeli authority, and uh, more than 60% uh, of the people who apply for their permits uh, always, uh, you know, getting denial from the Israelis or uh, doesn't get, you know, approval or an answer from the Israelis. So the, uh, you know, the, um, the movement access through areas is limited. And during, during the uh, outbreak of COVID-19, uh, people who are able to, to travel right now through areas, uh, only the, you know, the sick people who are able to get, you know, uh, a number of permits. It's not, you know, uh, all the uh, patients can get permits to live alone. Uh, also, we still have a major problem that if we have, for example, and uh, you know, a, a kid who uh, sick, uh, most of the uh, time the Israelis are giving you know a permit for one a companion, and uh, always the the, uh, the companion will not be the father or the mother, will be the grandmother or the you know one of the relatives who uh, who is uh, above uh, let's say uh, 55 years old. So you can't imagine a baby with, uh, you know, two or three years old uh, traveling with the, a grandmom, uh, you know, for a serious, uh, you know, health issue uh, alone with, uh, you know, grandmom. And what are the health facilities like in Gaza at the moment? You know, the health facility in Gaza, uh, you know, is still, uh, you know, affected by the, the siege. We still have, you know, uh, you know, uh, the facilities, but it's still there is, a, you know, a, a shortage of everything. So if you are speaking about the drugs, it's more than 50% of the drugs, uh, the, the the stock is zero, and also, uh, you know, for the medical equipment, the, uh, the the de facto government here in Gaza doesn't have, you know, the budget to buy, you know, equipment. So they are completely depend on the international NGOs or, you know, uh, depend on the, uh, sometimes for, uh, on the Palestinian, Palestinian authority to give them, you know, some of this equipment, you know, to survive. So uh, the health situation completely affected by uh, this decision. And um, I mean, you mentioned the, 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 just a couple of border crossings. Can people leave by sea at all? No, no, no access to, to, to live through the sea, no. I mean, it does, it does really look as though the, the, the place is incredibly tightly policed. There's very little free movement. What, what about the movement of vital goods? You know, me medical supplies, obviously that's your field, but also food and, uh, and supplies. I mean, how, how is that affected by this virtual siege of Gaza? Okay, this is a good question. Well, actually, uh, to be honest with you, the, the goods, um, the, we have two types of goods. 
according to Israeli you know, category. First of all, if you are speaking about food, um, there is no restrictions uh, to, to bring foods in Gaza, but you need to coordinate this two or three days in advance. But there are some materials which the Israelis call, uh, you know, um, double, uh, let's say, double, um, double use material. So uh, the Israelis are, you know, refusing to, for this material to come to Gaza. If we are speaking about medical equipment, the medical equipment can cross, but you know you have to apply, you have to get approval from the Israelis, you have to get the approval from the Shabak before you uh, you know ship them to Gaza. Um, the medication can cross also without any uh, any problem. By the way, there's a message here from uh, our, our colleagues at uh, Palestine Deep Dive to everybody, um, and that is uh, to discover and support the vital work Sahail and his team carry out in Gaza with Palestine Children's Relief Fund, uh, please go to HTTPS, uh, actually what I should say is www.pcrf.net, www.pcrf.net. And here's a question, this is a question actually I'm going to ask to both um, uh, Nada and Isam before coming on to you, Yara, and, 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 and this is a question from uh, Fahed uh, Abouaikal to all panellists, well actually, I, I, but I'm going to ask uh, you first of all, Nada, and to you, Isam, can you share, please, a real life story of Palestinian suffering on a daily basis? I think this is kind of, an to give an idea of what it is to be in Gaza, um, the main uh, American media doesn't share our story and right now we have to be on alternative media and I suppose this is where we find ourselves now but actually we're going to make ourselves mainstream because we're going to force this issue further and further up the agenda but I mean I think this is what people would like to hear about particular cases what is it like to be in Gaza Nada can you tell me what is it like to be in Gaza give us an example of somebody you know from the perspective of people in my age like for example many of my friends uh, they did not have the ability or the opportunity to leave Gaza so we we can say <clears throat> that we don't know what the real world is we don't know how is it to be on a plane we don't know how to be uh, or how to have like 24 hours of electricity that's abnormal for us so that's we we sometimes joke about this thing but it's a real fact and it does like it does make a difference so for me i had the opportunity to leave gaza like twice but it was like one of the uh, like memorial memorable uh, uh, memories for me so it's really it's really frustrating to have friends that they did not have the opportunity to, to share these memories with me so that's for me what about you as home yeah definitely i can assure the same message that maybe some things we are used to like the unemployment the increasing of unemployment rate the sewage flooding all over gaza the diseases spreading other than the COVID 19 and the list goes on of you know the sufferings of people from gaza but as a personal story i was selected in 2019 to represent palestine within a delegation of international observers in uh, to the tunisian election in 2019 I was selected to represent Palestine and I applied my papers to go through Eretz crossing. I was denied because people of my age, they are 99% denied the permit. I applied my papers throughout to go throughout Rafah and Egypt crossing. 
and the, the, the road spent like three days to reach Cairo airport while it only takes 12 hours or less. What reason so, were you given not to be given your visa? Why, why weren't you given to a visa? Well, it's not about the visa. I got the, the Tunisian visa to go to Tunis, but I'm yeah. saying that the, the road that would take 12 hours or less, I spent three days, I slept on the floor of the building of the border crossing because they wanted to deport me. And the, 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 the entitle of deportion is really absent on, on the understanding of the Western communities because like they are moving me in a specific buses as a prisoner, they don't allow me to enter the country, but they want me from this, this border crossing to the, to the airplane. I mean direct. They don't allow me to buy a SIM card. They don't allow me to buy food. They don't allow me to move at any place other than staying at that bus and I spent three days with my colleague from Gaza to reach Cairo airport and then during my way back during my way back I spent two days to reach Rafah while they called me by my name several times despite that I have the official papers to consider me part of the official delegation the formal delegation with the Carter Center the center that is funded by the the president the US president Jimmy Carter and they ignored all my papers. I had a paper from the Ministry of the Ministry of Interior in Egypt to allow me to travel as a decent human being, but they insisted on humiliating me the best they can. Those are those many stories. My story, even my story, it's it's way privileged, I would say. It's way privileged than many other stories of Palestinians of sufferings. I know people in Gaza, they suffer to bring food and water to their children. I know people they would they would think of suicide. And talking about the suicide, it's it's increasing. I well, mean, on you know, it, you you know it's, it. it's um it it to, to people watching this, it kind of does bring home the reality of life in Gaza and how difficult it is to to leave and and how it would appear that all sorts of tactics of intimidation are used to actually stop people who are traveling quite legally on a visa. It seems quite extraordinary to many people watching that this happens. Uh, and, and is happening in Gaza. I want to just, I, I keep on saying I'm going to come to you, Yara, which I will very shortly, but I want to ask one other question about the situation in Gaza right now. Um, I'll come to you, Sahar, once more, if I just very briefly. Um, I mean, when we talked about, uh, uh, the United Nations talked about uh, Gaza being uninhabitable by 2020, I mean, clearly things are absolutely appalling, but people are still struggling to live and survive. But can you tell us something about this, the water situation in Gaza? What is the situation, Sahar, with, with water? Get access to fresh water. Yeah, well, access to the fresh water. You know, Gaza uh, water situation is miserable right now because, you know, the water became uh, salty. And uh, now I can, say, uh, I can say that all the people in Gaza, uh, they have to buy, you know, water to drink. This is the fact here. And recently, uh, the Palestinian Authority started some projects for desalination of seawater, so they can provide people with, uh, you know, fresh water to, uh, to drink. Uh, for example, in my home, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm buying the water for, you know, to drink it, but we are using the other, the other source of water for washing, for, you know, taking, uh, you know, shower, that's it. So uh, in general, 
the uh, the majority of the uh, of the water reserve reserve uh, reserve in Gaza is salty, and um, uh, you know we are uh, now uh, thinking about you know desalination of water or to buy water from Israel. Right. Well, look, I keep on promising coming to Yara, and I'm going to do so now. Yara, thank you very much for being so patient, and thank you for joining us from uh, from Florida. Um, now. The, 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 the deteriorating situation in Gaza is not new, but it appears to have speeded up over the past 18 months. Um, many people are putting this down to the decision by the Trump administration to, to cut $300 million from the funding of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. And for people watching who don't know, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency has been around since uh, the division of uh, Palestine, and it's there to support Palestinians in work and relief, as it says. Um, however, I mean, much of that money has been made up by other um, member states, all quite appalled at what the Trump administration did. So is this UNRWA money that's still there, but is it just a sticking plaster now? Are the problems so severe, really, that actually um, even making up lost budgets of UNRWA aren't going to be, aren't going to do an awful lot of good? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, thanks, Mark. And uh, I'm always happy to defer my time to my colleagues that are there in Gaza, because again, those are the voices we need to hear. So no apologies needed. Um, so you are right that once the Trump administration cut US funding to um, UNRWA, which was more than $300 million, other member states and NGOs filled in many of those gaps so that the actual care provision was not significantly interrupted. Um, they did say in their 2020-2021 budget that they did have to make certain programmatic adjustments, but for the most part, I think they've been able to remain uh, operational. I think when we consider the problem, though, we have to look way back, you know, like everything else. Uh, in 2012, the UN, as you said earlier, was already predicting that Gaza would be unlivable, quote unquote, by 2020 if significant changes were not made, as, as you referenced. This was pre-Trump, this was pre-COVID, this was before the highly destructive war in 2014 that has mm -hmm. left just destroyed infrastructure to this day. So the problem then is that the agency is a relief agency tasked with working in an ongoing and actually deteriorating, actively deteriorating crisis. So they can build the much needed schools and clinics and they do, um, but social and economic indicators still decrease over time. They can't rebuild the economy in Gaza. They can't change what happens at the borders. They don't control the Palestinian Authority. They hold no sway on Israeli policy. Their mandate is for aid and relief, not finding an end to the cause of the Palestinian refugee crisis. Right, thank you. Um, I've got a question here from Kathy Greaves, and she says, will this Zoom uh, interview be available afterwards for sharing with several groups who would like to know the information and uh, hear more. Yes, of course it will, Kathy. Go to Palestine Deep Dive. Um, I'm sure my colleagues Omar uh, uh, will be able to. He'll be able to tell us uh, when it might be available. When obviously we need to edit the show down a bit, but uh, it will be available. And please, yes, get it out there to as wide a community as possible. Nada, I'm going to come back to you briefly because I understand that you're studying dentistry. Um, now, I mean, can I ask you? I mean, in, in a situation in Gaza where people are, are essentially struggling to go about their lives, I can't imagine that they're, they're, their teeth are their top priority. 
so how how do how do people get to dental treatment and where do you where will you be getting all your equipment and needs from and one final question to use a lot of people say well wouldn't you find it just a lot easier to go and work somewhere else well definitely yes maybe dentistry is not the best thing to be specialized in in gaza <laughs> so like uh well two months ago before the corona outbreak in gaza i was uh, doing my internship in uh, in governmental clinics so yeah after seeing the the like we can say that the overall oral hygiene and oral health uh, for the local uh, palestinians in gaza is not really good People like people do not care about the teeth. They, they do not have the will actually to to take care of their teeth. So and the the problem is that they cannot afford the treatment, and that's the the biggest problem. So in dentistry, we can say that, for example, dental dental extractions uh, is the the last option for treatment. But in Gaza, we can say that sometimes it gets like it's the first line of the treatment for the patient. So it's really pro a problem. And for the materials, like, uh, for example, we do have, currently we do have shortage in the black fillings or amalgam fillings, we called it. Uh, as I said before, I work in a governmental clinics, so people cannot afford the white fillings. So we use the black fillings and it's not actually, you can, like, you can barely find it in Gaza uh, because people cannot afford actually the white fillings so it's really challenging here to find the materials to use that you use on a daily basis as a dentist so it's really a big big problem for dental students and for the dentists in Gaza. Well thank you. Um, Yara just coming back to you again I mean a, a multitude of issues faced by people every day on the ground in Gaza um, but many people will say well look uh, you know Israel has pulled out of Gaza uh, uh, it's left Gaza to its own devices. Gaza uh, had an election, uh, and although the Israelis have done their best, uh, as have other countries around the world who don't approve to, um, to, to, to make life difficult for the government, the Hamas government there, um, essentially, uh, you know, Israel is not an occupier as it is in the West Bank. Uh, what do you say to that, Yara? What, I mean, what and what does does Israel actually have any continuing responsibility to Palestinians in Gaza? Well, I'm really glad you brought this up um, because we're really starting to see this shift in the narrative about what is actually happening between the actions and policies of the Israeli government and the Palestinians. I mean, it is true that in 2005, Israel removed its military bases and settlements from Gaza. They termed this disengagement. And they stated that because of these withdrawals, there will be no basis for claiming that the Gaza Strip is occupied territory. You know, the problem is that nobody else uh, agreed with that. Uh, most governments and multinational organizations, including the United Nations and the International Criminal Court, they maintain that Gaza is occupied. You know, I'm not a legal scholar, but many legal minds have made this argument as well. Um, this argument, as you insinuate, is important because, you know, according to international humanitarian law, an occupying power does have specific legal duties towards those under its control. However, fewer people, I think, would argue that the West Bank is not occupied, yet we have not seen those legal duties fulfilled in the West Bank either. Um, I think to me, when I think of responsibility for welfare, you know, 
even outside of the legal framework of occupation. I think the party that controls the borders, along with Egypt, of course, um, the party that mandates the number of miles a fisherman can fish, a party that prevents Palestinians from building their own airport, that makes a list of items that is banned from entering, and you know, including difficulties with x-ray equipment and CT scanners and batteries for hospitals, the party that approves the travel permits for people from Gaza with cancer and other chronic illnesses to get treatment that they can't get in Gaza because of the blockade that that same party puts on, you know, I think it's hard to argue that that party does not bear a great deal of responsibility towards the welfare of the population. That's interesting, Yara, because I think another point that people uh, make is that, yes, if you say that Gaza is effectively a massive open-air prison, and for all the reasons you've just set out there, why is Egypt prepared to be a prison guard as well? Is that a question for me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, as we're seeing in 2020, you know, the relationship of the Arab states uh, with this conflict has really changed over time. I think uh, the governments, you know, the Arab street, as they call it, uh, I think really speaks passionately about Palestinian liberation, especially in Gaza. Um, but Arab governments, um, you know, behind the scenes may not share the same goals, you know. Um, you have a lot of autocratic regimes in the Arab world um, that are not representative of their populations. They do not tolerate dissent within their own populations. And they are, you know, they want arms deals. They want approval from the West. They have a lot of other incentives. To them, I think that, you know, the Palestinians and Gaza specifically, unfortunately, is a bargaining chip that they're willing to use to get what the governments want. We have a question here, which I'm going to put to you uh, as, uh, as well, uh, Yara, and this is from uh, Joseph O'Neill. Uh, Joseph says, can Gaza be compared to the Warsaw Ghetto? Can the bombing of Gaza be described as, and it's just leapt up there, can be described as a as a blitzkrieg, he says, is, is this potentially a, a, a genocide? A Palestinian Shoah Nakba Holocaust? Well, I mean, people would, some people would say that's a hugely controversial question, uh, but it's been asked and it deserves an answer. Uh, can Gaza be compared to the Warsaw Ghetto? Um, in terms of, you know, living there, I think I would defer to my colleagues that live there and, and live this experience, but I would say from the humanitarian perspective, when you have a, um, you know, blockade and siege on a civilian population, uh, two million people, half of which are children that have no political agency and have nothing to do with politics, um, that are all being succumbed to the same treatment of collective punishment, um, I don't know if it's, you know, it's touchy to make historical comparisons. I don't think we need to. I think we need to look at Gaza for what it is today. It is a wholly unique situation. Um, you know, it's important to look back at human rights violations in the past, of course, and compare them, but we regularly see uh, areas of impunity, whether it's the Uyghurs, whether it's the Rohingya, whether it's Yemen, whether it's Syria. I think the importance is to look at all marginalized people as victims of the same structural violence, whether it's Gaza, whether it's the Jews in the Holocaust, you know, um, almost 100 years ago. Um, I, I don't know. If, 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 you know, I don't know what the value is in saying, is it like this or is it like that? I think that the people in Gaza, and again, my colleagues, please correct me, they want this situation handled um, 
you know, in a way that brings dignity. Um, well, I, and I think, I think clearly we, ha we have to learn from history so as not to repeat the same terrible tragedies and errors uh, that, that history's presented to us, but no, no direct cases. I mean, not, things are not always the same. But having said that, we've got a, a response from um, our colleagues, the question about when would this available, uh, be available. Um, hi, Cathy, thank you for your question. This webinar will be available to share tomorrow. Keep an eye on our YouTube channel for the link, which is uh, youtube.com, Palestine Deep Dive News Channel. So keep an eye out um, if you want to, to, uh, to share this with uh, friends. Um, actually, here's another question, which I'm going to put to Sahail. And it was, I was going to ask it myself, but somebody's got there before me. And, and this is from, um, this is a question from uh, Yara. Uh, and the question is, how did Corona affect the PCRF's work in Gaza and Palestine in general? How, how is the pandemic affecting what you're doing, Suhail? Yeah. Well, actually, um, you know, the, um, the corona pandemic affect, affected PCRF uh, mm -hmm. severely because simply um, we, are, uh, we are not able to, um, uh, to bring uh, medical missions uh, to, to Palestine in general. Uh, we stopped, you know, all the medical missions uh, starting from March uh, 2020. Uh, we were, uh, you know, planning to have uh, 170 medical missions for this year, uh, but uh, actually only 20 missions were accomplished. Uh, and this is very uh, important for us because we have hundreds or, or thousands of, of kids are still waiting to get, you know, the treatment, uh, which is not available uh, in, in Gaza or in West Bank. And our teams used to do these spe uh, specialized, you know, um, uh, operations like, uh, let's say, uh, pediatric open heart surgery, uh, pediatric neurosurgery, pediatric orthopedic surgeries. All the, these kind of surgeries are not available here. And people in, uh, in this case, they have to refer their uh, kids outside Gaza, even to Egypt or uh, to West Bank, in a special, uh, you know, um, uh, hospitals in West Bank. So really, uh, the um, you know the pandemic affected our activities. So we shifted our work from you know uh, medical missions right now, uh, and we started you know um, um, you know uh, supporting the health system in West Bank in Gaza by you know providing them with PPEs and also with the uh, equipment related to COVID-19. What, what about test and trace, Suhail? This is a problem that, I mean, I, you know, this is a, a problem that countries like Britain and the United States don't seem to be able to cope with, and they've got, we've got plenty of resources here. What about um, track and trace in Gaza? Are you able to, are the medical services able to, to actually find people who have contracted the virus in order to be able to isolate and then to treat? Well, actually, in Gaza, the Minister of Health uh, they, you know, um, uh, they moved uh, or they changed one of the hospitals uh, from, uh, you know, normal hospital to uh, a hospital just for COVID. So they shift all the specialties from that hospital and they, you know, uh, modified this hospital only for COVID. So the, the health system here in Gaza, they have triage. People with COVID without uh, severe symptoms, they are, you know, kept the uh, they, they are keeping them in, uh, in that hospital. And if the, uh, the symptoms are severe, 
they moved them to another hospital uh, in, in the south part of Gaza called the European Gaza Hospital. Uh, in general, uh, the, the, uh, the, the health system still, still uh, you know, uh, suffering from the shortage uh, for example, uh, the uh, ventilators, they have uh, almost in Gaza only um, 95 ventilators, which is not enough, you know, to cover the, the needs, the real needs uh, here on the, uh, on the ground. Uh, so uh, the lockdown, which the, uh, the government in Gaza started using uh, at the beginning of the uh, COVID was, uh, was very uh, efficient and, you know, it delays the, the COVID from Gaza for more, for more than um, six months. But recently, uh, when the, uh, you know, the, uh, the outbreak started in Gaza, now we have um, about 100, between uh, 100 to 150 cases daily uh, in Gaza. Well, that's quite serious. And um, I mean, of course, the, the, what, what they found in many parts of the world is that the people who are most susceptible are often people who live in the most crowded conditions, who have got the least, uh, often the poorest. Uh, and the fear really must be, I'm sure that you have it, is that uh, in the crowded conditions in Gaza, where people are struggling, um, that uh, this, this pandemic could cause an awful, awful lot of damage. But I'm going to go on. There's a question here. Uh, this question has come from Bella McAvoy. And Bella asked the question. I'm going to put this one to you, Issam. Um, and, 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 and Bella says, how hard is it to maintain links and contacts with people and organization in other parts of Palestine? Yeah, it's definitely difficult because we're talking about a system of isolation for any efforts to bring the narrative of the Palestinians on the media street. We have been facing that and we are not numbers. We have been facing the policy of isolation. We have been criticized so hard by the Israeli regime, by the Israeli supporters that we are spreading you know, lies and spreading, you know, fake news and so on. Such isolation is not only on, on the Palestinian platform, but also for any pro-Palestinian platform in the Middle East, as much as in the international community. We have been facing that for the past five years, and we are still facing this. Throughout our efforts, we are trying to connect not only with Palestinians, but any, any party who would, be, who would be interested in supporting the narrative and spreading the truth or maybe handle specific issue related to Gaza, mental health issue, health issue, economic crisis, and, and the list goes on. We're facing this so hard and we're trying as, as best as we can to reclaim the stolen narrative of, of, from Palestinians. And the question here is that, because some people ask me, why we should listen to you, why you don't lie to us? Because if you need the truth from people, you don't listen to the truth. I mean, from the tongue of other people about them, but you should listen to them. Because understanding the, the Palestinian suffering does not really require the understanding of the full political and historical background of Palestine, but it needs a great sense of humanity to understand the suffering, to be close to their narrative as much as listening to them, to be able to understand that it's just a human well, crisis. Yes, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna come back to you just briefly because we've got a question um, from Stephen Watters and I know that he has to leave fairly shortly. He's, uh, he's in England. Um, so I'm gonna put this question first of, you, first of all to you, Yara, and then to you, Issam. And the question is this, do you see uh, whether the siege will be lifted or how the siege will be lifted and what it would take to do that. Uh, Israel puts a lot of blame on Hamas. Do they think the siege would be lifted 
if Hamas were not in power, says Steve, who's in Sunderland. Yara, can we come to you? Sure. Um, you know, this is something that has garnered so much discussion and debate um, for the last nearly 20 years now. I, it is increasingly hard to see a political moment, especially seeing the direction of Israel and the Arab states and the United States as of today, you know, we don't know what will happen in the US next year, um, where these conditions would be possible. Um, we are only seeing increased impunity um, with uh, violators of international humanitarian law. We are not seeing, you know, around the world, um, and I feel like for many actors, the blockade in Gaza has just become, you know, background noise, just another issue like Jerusalem, like the refugees, like the settlements that just will be dealt with at a later date. That later date just keeps getting pushed out, you know. Um, I, you know, you ask under what conditions, conditions that I today cannot fathom. Um, I, and in terms of, you know, Hamas and, and, and that, you know, advocates and, 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 and people who have talked to the armed groups that, you know, fire the rockets and have talked with, um, you know, leaders of Hamas, you know, they see their actions as a response to the blockade and siege, not as random attacks because, you know, of a, you know, for, for some other reason. So despite the fact that IHL doesn't agree that discriminatory attacks on civilians is an adequate response, that is the framing. So you have one party saying, we'll get this party out of power and maybe we'll give you freedom. And then you have that party saying, well, no, give us the freedom first and then we will change our politics. So how do you square that circle? To, to be honest with you, I do not know. Isam. Yeah, definitely. I can't really add many to what Yara mentioned because this is the pattern that is known about the Palestinian narrative debate. They are asking us what should be done. They are asking us what is the responsibility to take, you know, to handle Hamas or to handle the PLO. Well, the question is that why you are blaming, why you are questioning the reaction, why you are not even discussing the basis of the issue, the action itself, the occupation, the siege, why you are blaming a party that that even existed in the very beginning because of the existing the occupation and the apartheid regime. So such debate, either we acknowledge it or not, either we like it or not, debating that Hamas has existed or not, and the suffering continues because they are existed, it's absolutely nonsense to mention because people have been suffering before Hamas. The occupation started before the existence of Hamas, before the existence of the PLO. Either you see it or not, but the existence of the issue is based on the ethnic cleansing and the expelling and the killing and the massacre since 1948. And if you can't, if you can't really find those facts and those, you know, uh, those issues are the ones that deserve to be discussed, then I don't know what should be discussed. Thank you, Issam. We've got a question here uh, from Tuka. I'm going to ask you this question, Nada. I don't know if you're going to know the answer to it, but um, obviously this impacts on people's health and well-being. Um, I mean, with so many people concentrated in such a tiny area, there's bound to be an awful lot of, uh, of waste. And the question from Tuka is, how is it going with the waste in Gaza? Can you recycle in Gaza? Can you have zero waste? Thank you. What is the situation? How do people dispose of stuff? And how, does the, how do the townships dispose of waste? We do. Yeah, we do have tons of waste. But the answer is, I hope we can recycle it. 
uh, we do we do have too many waste in Gaza and we do have too many ideas about recycling it. But the problem is that there is no, uh, like we can say, facilitation to the to those projects. Mm. It's really expensive to to recycle waste, especially here in Gaza. We don't have any machines. We don't have uh, like any other facilities that other countries have. So it's it's a really challenging thing to have. Uh, but it's a good idea, and I know many people they have like many many good uh, ideas about the the recycling. But we don't. I don't think. Like, I don't have that experience in this thing, but I don't think that we do recycle waste in Gaza. Thank you. Uh, there's a question here from uh, Dario Fischera. Um, and Dario says, please give a brief opinion. Um, and I'm going to come to you, uh, Yara. Please give a brief opinion. Um, with Palestinians facing everyday discrimination and oppression, um, what what about this? I mean, we, we've seen we've seen the Trump deal of the century. We've seen the UAE and Bahrain reaching diplomatic agreements with Israel. And the question from Dario, you know, what 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 does it really mean? This normalisation of the relationship at one level between the leaderships of the UAE, Bahrain, and the leaderships of uh, Israel. Um, I think a lot of Palestine, you know, and I'm from the West Bank, and so I, I can speak uh, from that perspective primarily, but I think a lot of Palestinians um, are interested in how, you know, peace processes between countries that are not at war have anything to do with the Palestinians. It seems to me like an economic and arms trade negotiation rather than anything to do with Palestinian liberation. I mean, in some of these, uh, you know, when you read these documents, they don't refer to occupation. They don't for, they, they, you know, Israel agreed to defer annexation in the West Bank, not never to speak of it again. Um, so when you look at public opinion polls across Gaza and the West Bank, and they see it as, you know, a betrayal by the Arab regimes, but I think that's in part because, you know, the last few years have shown Palestinians that, you know, the U.S. is not an honest, unbiased broker in this. A lot of Palestinians were depending on the stronger Arab states, especially the Gulf states, to, to pick up the Palestinian cause. I think we can see that that tack is not going to work. Um, I, I think my hope is that, um, you know, Palestinian leadership, specifically the Palestinian Authority, needs to use these obvious signs that no one is coming to save us. We need to put forth our own new plan. We need, you know, leadership that, you know, engages with civil society, that has, you know, open and transparent elections that responds to the needs of the Palestinian people. Um, you know, Abbas has really um, in, invested a lot in this uh, international recognition of Palestine to kind of build a Palestinian state, you know, UNESCO and the, and the General Assembly and trying to get wins there. It, it's not showing progress on the ground in Palestine. So I think as Palestinians are seeing the international opportunities shrink I think there needs to be more of an organic um, movement from within Palestine that will say, this is what we see as our future. This is what we want. And you have to come on board with us and stop kind of dragging us along with these international deals that, again, have nothing to do with us. That's very interesting, Garen. I, I, I get a feeling that, you know, we, we must take Palestine deep dive towards that topic, actually, as you're talking about that. I'm thinking much of much of the conversation or the reportage that goes on is is all about 
what this means to Palestine, UAE and Israel, what it might mean with a change of administration in Washington DC, for instance, in a couple of weeks time. But actually what you're saying is that um, these things, they don't really make much of a difference because they're going the wrong way. And so you have to do things in a different way. But I suppose the question then would be, and this is a question I'll put to you just briefly, Sam, uh, is, you know, what does that do to people's morale on the ground though? Because, okay, you know, the, the, there's been a whole history of disappointment and you can call it betrayal. And when you see Gulf Arab uh, sheikhs shaking hands with Israeli leaders, that must be very, very, it must be have a, a bad effect on morale in Gaza. Yeah, absolutely. This has created, this has been creating uh, a sense of disappointment, a sense of hopelessness. The citizens of Gaza and the citizens of, of Palestine are feeling towards the regional countries in the Middle East. They are feeling betrayed. They are feeling stabbed in the back because, and I would like to add to Yara's statement about the issue that we, no matter what we are offering to the Palestinian cause, we're offering blood and bodies and many, many numbers since decades, but this is not a topic. And I mean by that, that the efforts of, of the Palestinians, they're not enough to stop this colonization system. It needs a solid ground of international community's approval. It needs public opinion to be changed and to be, to be supported in, in a way or another to the Palestinian cause, because either we see it or not, Palestinian suffering is continuing because of the U.S. funds, because the Arab countries are dreaming to reach the American dream, because they want ties with, with, Amer with America. So in a way or another, we consider this as a matter of political place, and the Palestinians are paid, are, are, paid the are paying the expenses on behalf of the Arab countries to reach the American dream and to have solid ties with Israel and the USA as well. Thank you, Sam. There's a question. This is from Alex Bustos. I'm going to come to you, Nada. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, thank you for speaking to Deep Dive today. Can you, can you speak about the media representation versus the reality of life in Gaza? And specifically, uh, he says, uh, does Alex, to the great march of return. There was so much propaganda and mis misinformation about this in much mainstream and social media. Could you speak about your experiences and um, and 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 um, and in that in that context, you know, your experience and, and what you thought of the media coverage of it? You were you were involved with that, Nada? Were you? Well, I actually like for myself. I wasn't uh, participating in it. <laughs> I'm a dental student, and I have to study all the day. Mm. But actually, it, like for the media coverage, it's it's not about only the the Great Return March. It's about our life in Gaza. All all of our life in Gaza is exposed for the media, but it depends on the other countries would they believe us or not. So I think the media coverage is completely like honest, but. It's, it's my question is for the other countries. Do you believe what you see or not? Mm. So, yeah. Suha, what do you think? I mean, do you get to see much international media coverage of, uh, of, of, of the struggles of life in Gaza? And of course, the, that great march of return, the terrible violence that was meted out, many people still left disabled. Many people left dead by what happened there. Yeah, well, actually, you know, when the great Death March of Return started. It was, you know, peaceful, um, you know, uh, demonstrations. Then, you know, the Israelis started, you know, shooting people. Uh, more than 312 people were killed, and more than I think um, 
uh, more than uh, 170 people uh, amputated. And in the near future, more than 100 people who are still under uh, intensive, you know, uh, orthopedic treatment will be, uh, sorry to say, uh, will be go to amputation. So uh, for, for me, uh, for myself and my family, we didn't participate. Uh, we didn't participate because, you know, most of, uh, of us were very, uh, you know, uh, busy with the, uh, for example, uh, Nada were, you know, busy with her studying. And me, uh, at, at that time, uh, there was many uh, medical missions that I have to run here in Gaza. Uh, so the, the uh, let's say the, uh, the result of the Great March of Ukraine was disaster for us. Uh, from the medical, uh, you know, uh, let's say, um, medical uh, issue. Uh, and uh, also, um, the many, many people which I heard from the media that uh, they were against the, the, the idea uh, or the, the way that, you know, starting, you know, doing this Great March of return because we lost a lot of, of, of people and a lot of injuries. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm so sorry to say that the, the, the target of this uh, great march of reform uh, wasn't, you know, uh, you know, achieved. This is why the people stop it. It's interesting, Suhad, because of course uh, we did see a lot of the images of the of the shootings, the using of uh, of live inf uh, uh, live ammunition on on demonstrators and uh, people who who might at the very worst have been armed with slings and stones. Uh, and I think a lot of people. Uh, they didn't necessarily have to be told which way to think, but they will have seen these extraordinary, ex violent uh, exchanges and wondered how it is that uh, um, armament sales, for instance, uh, are, are still continuing uh, with Israel. And uh, Israel gets an awful lot of military aid and support from especially the United States, but many other countries. And some of this weaponry is being used essentially to control demonstrations when actually you know, the very worst, you know, there, there, are, there are peaceful ways of policing demonstrations without ca causing injury. But anyway, people have seen this and they're appalled. But I, but I, want, I want to sort of finish off, if I may, because we're, unfortunately we're coming to the end of uh, this week's Palestine deep dive. And it's a, it's a bit of a difficult question, I suppose, because, you know, just, you know, what, what one thing to life, make life better, what would that be? Uh, but I suppose cumulatively coming from each of you, you know, if one, if one thing could actually improve the life of the average person in Gaza, the people of Gaza, what could that be? And I'm going to start with you, Nada. What could that be? What one thing would you say could really improve people's lives and what we should, people should be pushing for and campaigning for? that's maybe that's the hardest question you can ask for a Gazan so like I think for me uh, I think like maybe what we all need is a freedom and especially freedom of movement we do suffer a lot to to get out of this place and I can say that uh, like after being uh, after sitting at home because of corona we can say that there's no there's no difference between our lives be before corona and after corona because we are actually in the same place. So for me, freedom of movement, it's, it's uh, we do, I know many of my friends lost scholarships, lost their job uh, opportunities, lost their, like maybe their families, they cannot see their families because they cannot move outside of Gaza. 
So for me, freedom of movement, maybe it's the, the, the first thing that as a Palestinian from Gaza, I want to see. Well, as is uh, Abu Zaid, who's watching, says uh, he obviously agrees with you. Open up the borders, he says. Um, Yara, to you, what do you think? If you could, if you had your magic wand, what would what would what would be the make the most single biggest difference? Um, you know, I'd, I'd have to follow up on freedom of movement um, for you know the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, and and Palestinians in the diaspora. Who you know, I, I, as a Palestinian from the West Bank, it would be easier for me to go literally anywhere in the world but Gaza. Um, you know, I think if I could wave my magic wand, the only way you can justify um, the siege, the wall, the checkpoints, the permit system is because there is this overlying dehumanizing narrative that every Palestinian, if, if they could, is a security threat. That is the only way you can justify this type of collective punishment. Um, you know, you have to keep them contained. You have to have them fill out, you know, pages and pages of forms. They have to prove so strongly that they're not a security threat. Um, and, you know, that's just, it's dehumanizing. It's a tired stereotype. You know, we had protests in the United States and studies showed that 93% of them were peaceful. And yet, what do you see on the news? You see the 7% of the violence. And that has been the Palestinian, uh, you know, story for 70 years. Most Palestinians are normal people that want to live their lives, go to dental school, visit the world, you know, eat sushi, you know, like have a normal everyday life. Um, and I think that if I could just change the how Palestinians are discussed, the narrative of Palestinians, I think it would be incredibly hard um, for detractors to justify the actions um, you know, out, outside of any legal process, look at what we're doing to actual people that are just like you and me. Is this okay? You Thank know? you, Yara. Um, and because we're really running out of time now. So briefly, Suhail, uh, what, what would you say? Well, uh, I'm completely with Yara and Nada about what they said, uh, but I have to to add that we need to change our leaders. Interesting. Well, I think we'll have to come back to that issue definitely in the future Palestine deep dive and um, and, and perhaps we'll ask you to come back on Suhal so you can t tell us more about that. Unfortunately, since we're reaching the end of the show today, we're not going to have enough time. Uh, but Issam, um, uh, where are you on this? What's your... Yeah, I, I truly believe point? Yara's message because this is why We Are Not Numbers existed and that's how I started my journey since the war of 2012. I started because I believe that the humanized perspective of the Palestinian narrative has been lost and it's my responsibility as much as other youth of my age to tell the story of life as much as there is death found. But if I'm going to ask for something more, I would say accountability because it is lost in the international awareness. There is absolutely no sense of accountability to the mistakes the international community committed to the US policy, to anything that is helping Israel in a way or another. Thank you, Issam. And look, here's a message for you all. And this is from the great Roger Waters. He says, thank you all. Thank you all. That's from Roger. Thank you, Roger. You were our guest the other week and we'd love to have you back on again too. Um, well, look, sadly, 
that brings us to the end of this week's um, show. And thank you very, very much to all of you for joining us. Thank you very much from, uh, from Gaza, from uh, Florida in the United States. I see for you, Sam, at least the lights came back on. So one of your wishes has been granted. But look, thank you very much. It's been terrific. Um, great, great to have you. We'd like to have you back on again. Each week, we're getting more and more uh, viewers. Um, by the way, people will be able to watch this um, I think we should, we'll go to Keep on Palestine Deep Dive. You'll see when it's available. I think it should be available tomorrow. Uh, but that's it from us this week. Uh, thanking everybody, all our guests, and to Omar, to Alex, to Kirill, who've made this all possible, uh, and to Kieran Baker. And, um, and to next week, who our guest, where our guest will be, uh, Ian Williams. And Ian Williams is the president of the Foreign Press Association in New York, a former president of the UN Correspondents Association, a longtime supporter of the Palestinian cause and a columnist uh, for Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. So thank you. And uh, until next time, join us again next week, Palestine Deep Dive. Thank you. Thank you, Mark.